This is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, offering education, health care, and the opportunity to achieve career success since 1867. Information at go.wvu.edu slash forward. Welcome to the legislature today. I'm Brianna Heaney. Today is the 30th day of the 2024 legislative session. That's the halfway mark. More than 2,200 bills have been introduced this session, but only nine have completed legislation. Among the bills on third reading in the House today, a proposal on allowing schools to hire trained security guards led to a social debate over the issue of training in systemic racism. Randy Yowie has more. House Bill 4851 is a bill to allow for public and private schools in West Virginia to employ security personnel. The proposed training for these security guards includes firearms training, knowing certain state laws, properly dealing with disabled students, and understanding the concepts of racism and systemic racism. An amendment proposed to the bill would strike systemic racism from the training requirements. That sparked what at first was a one-sided debate because some amendment sponsors would not yield to a question. Delegate Amitra Hamilton, a Democrat from Monongalia County, opposed the amendment, saying systemic racism is woven into education, health care, and much of the fabric of our society. People are not willing to agree that this is happening in West Virginia because that would lend to the ideology that we have structures in place within this state that are intentionally prohibiting people, particularly people of color, people like me, from advancing, from having access to equal ac- education, equal health care. We don't want to agree to those things happening here. Delegate Tom Fast, a Republican from Fayette County, supported the amendment, saying the current language in the bill presupposes and would codify that the whole society or the whole education system is racist or biased. That means all persons are inherently racist or biased. So you can look to the person on your left and you can look to the person on your right, regardless of their color, and you can presuppose that they are racist or biased. This amendment seeks and rejects that notion. House Minority Leader Sean Hornbuckle, a Democrat from Cabell County, said acknowledging systemic racism doesn't make anyone any less of a person or less of a Republican. And I'm just finding it hard to understand that now, all of a sudden, we're doing things to chip chip away at people working together to, to acknowledge things. Why would we do that? I mean, again, we, we see it time and time. We see it with just recently in the financial sector with financial firms and banks being caught red-handed on not allowing mortgages for certain people. We've seen insurance companies denying coverage 
for certain people. Other Republicans joined Democrats in speaking against excluding systemic racism from school security guard training. Finally, the amendment sponsor, Delegate Elias Coop Gonzalez, a minority Latino, said he was elected, thus proving his point. Because I'm from Guatemala, and my mom is indigenous, and I inherited her last name. To date, none of the people sitting over there have had the courage to condemn him. Not the gentleman from the 5th or the 25th. I guess they didn't show up to work. But in my district, Latinos make up less than 1%, less than 1% of the population. But in 2022, for only the second time in the history of our state, they elected me, a Latino man, to represent them. Is that a racist system? No. I'm living proof of it. The amendment passed 75 to 20, removing systemic racism from the training list. House Bill 4851 passed 89 to nothing, with 11 members either absent or most of the 11 just not voting. For the legislature today, I'm Randy Yowie. The Senate advanced 13 bills today. They sent Senate Bill 596 to committee. That bill is the same bill as House Bill 5045, which would give the EPA assurances that carbon capture and storage will not pollute groundwater. That House bill was amended to be fused with the Senate bill, which is identical. On this regular session halfway day, House Democrats held a press conference to highlight their priorities going forward. Randy Yowie has that report. Helping people and how to spend the state's money. The 12 House Democrats say those are the two driving factors that should be at the center of every bill proposed. House Minority Leader Sean Hornbuckle from Cabell County said, priorities not addressed so far in this regular session include diminished attention to public education, not enough movement on the supposed Republican priority of child care, rising utility rates, and a need to legalize adult-use recreational cannabis. First and foremost, we are always, we are always going to work in a bipartisan fashion. The state deserve it, our people deserve it. However, we're also going to make sure that we stand up to extremism. Very, very important to us. Secondly, it's also very important for people to know that we do not set the agenda here. While we're always going to lobby for bills that are important to West Virginians, we don't have control over what goes on our agenda. Delegate Evan Hansen from Monongalia County focused on what Democrats want to do to lower those rising West Virginia electric rates. Electric rates in West Virginia have gone up faster than in any other state in the country in recent years. And that's made it hard for working people and for retirees to pay their electric bills and to get by. So we have a few bills that directly address that issue. Uh, the first I wanted to highlight is an energy freedom bill. It's House Bill 4834, and it allows for community solar where people can subscribe to a solar project and save money immediately on their electric bills. And then there are two other bills that are transparency bills to make sure that the State Public Service Commission and our electric utilities are providing information to the public. 
Other legislative Democratic concerns include flat budgets that don't compensate for inflation or addressing citizen needs, adequately paying all correction workers, school discipline inequities regarding minorities, and funding PEIA. Delegate Sean Fluharty from Ohio County said at the halfway point, this has been a do-nothing legislature. For the legislature today, I'm Randy Yowie. This morning, the House of Delegates held a public hearing on a bill that would restrict trans West Virginians access to the bathrooms, changing rooms, and locker rooms that match their gender. Delegates and members of the public gathered to voice their opinion on House Bill 5243, a bill that defines who is considered female or male. The bill's sponsors have named it the Women's Bill of Rights. However, under the bill, there are no specific rights allotted to women. One of the speakers against the bill was Rust Williams, an advocacy specialist with the ACLU. He says he wishes the legislature would pass legislation that would help lift up women in the state by addressing equal pay, maternity leave, and removing sales tax on feminine hygiene products like tampons. I was stoked. You know, as a man who was raised by a strong West Virginia woman, and I'm doing my best to raise a strong West Virginia woman, I thought, Women's Bill of Rights, it's about time we saw a good piece of legislation. Then I read it and was instantly disappointed. I mean, aren't you all tired of punching down? I mean, it's bill after bill after bill attacking marginalized communities. Since you all are either incapable or completely uninterested in drafting bills that actually help, I thought I'd do your job for you and drafted an actual Women's Bill of Rights. And this bill completely restores access to abortion and the full range of reproductive health care services. It removes the tax on feminine hygiene products and infant products such as bottles and diapers, you know, all the things that mothers have to pay for. It addresses menstrual equity and provides period products in all West Virginia schools, jails, and prisons. It addresses equal pay. It addresses maternity leave and family leave. It updates the definition of domestic violence to include coercive control. There's already a bill in the mix to do that. Um, and it also creates a holiday, a new holiday, Single Mother's Day. These are all things that West Virginia women actually need rather than this you know, uh, theater that we're all watching play out right now. And I have to admit, as somebody who really enjoys theater, this is really bad theater performed by some really bad actors. And I'll leave you with this. Um, you say you want to support West Virginia women? Well, I'm asking you to prove it. Do the right thing and park this piece of transphobic trash on the inactive calendar where it belongs and run a bill that truly benefits West Virginia women and will for generations to come. Another speaker opposed to the bill was trans West Virginian Max Varney, who asked legislators how their existence threatened someone. As to not mince words and waste time, I'm beginning with the statement that House Bill 5243 is appalling, harmful, and outright disgusting, and this bill needs to be opposed. I stand before you as a transgender person in West Virginia. I was born and raised in Mingo County. I was a barefoot holler child, and my soul resides in the mountains. I am not an offense to the public. I am not a threat to the public, nor is my existence offensive. House Bill 5243 is, a bill supporting, is not a bill supporting women. This bill crushes the rights of transgender people. Your willingness to use women's rights as a cover for transphobia is not shocking, but it is still outrageous and putrid. This bill is dehumanizing, this bill is unjust, and it is disgusting. And I want everyone to sit and really look at me. And I want you to, I want you to look for so long that you become uncomfortable. 
Why am I not supposed to be considered a person too? And why does my want to live happily and safely threaten someone? I'm here today to show you that trans people in West Virginia are real because I am a person in West Virginia who is transgender. I am real, I exist, and I deserve to be treated with humanity. Neela Thompson was one of seven attendees to speak in favor of the bill. She said this bill would prevent her from having to share a locker room with a trans female girl. On August 21st, I walked into my dance class changing room to see a male standing in the female's locker room. Not only would he go into the changing room and not even change, but he would stand there and watch as other biological females undressed. Our family approached the school with our concerns and their response was highly disappointing. I was told along with the rest of the class that if any female felt uncomfortable with changing the locker room, she could go into the men's because it was unoccupied during that period. House Bill 5243 will end inadequate policies such as the one the school board provided. The school board made it clear that my rights are not valued, but House Bill 5243 guarantees my rights, safety, privacy, and protection. I dropped the class and switched to one that does not subject me to being exposed in front of the opposite sex. Any policy that forces this type of exposure is abuse and nothing short of that. I'm thrilled I could be here today to express my gratitude and I'm so grateful you took the initiative to bring forth this bill. I trust you will pass this bill without diluting it with amendments, ensuring House Bill 5243 can protect women's rights to the fullest. Thank you. Thank you. Lead sponsor of the bill, Delegate Kathy Hess Kraus, a Republican from Putnam County, says she still plans on voting for the bill and does not plan on changing any language in the bill after hearing testimony from the 20 speakers against the bill. She says the bill is aptly named the Women's Bill of Rights because it protects women's privacy. It is our rights. We deserve and have the right to, have, to be called a woman and know what a woman is. Same with the man. They have that right to know what a man is and what a man is defined as. And we have a right to our own single-sex spaces, and that right should be protected. We have young girls that are being subjected to men being in the locker rooms with them, having to change in front of them in many situations. Um, and even adult women, and we shouldn't have to do that. So this goes to define exactly what a male and a female is, man and woman, and what those single sex spaces mean. However, many trans advocates say that placing a trans woman or trans man in the opposite gender's changing room would put them at risk. CDC data shows that 43% of transgender youth have been bullied on school property but that children who went to schools that had LGBTQ-friendly policies had a lower instance of bullying for trans and LGBTQ people. The bill is on a second reading in the House of Delegates. Higher demand for coal and natural gas, as well as higher prices, produced a severance tax windfall for the state over the past few years. But prices have fallen, and with it, tax revenues. To get a better idea of where things stand, Curtis Tate spoke with Kelly Allen, Executive Director of the West Virginia Center on Budget and Policy. Kelly Allen, thank you for being here. Thanks, Curtis. I'd like to start by just maybe with a brief explanation of what the severance tax is and uh, what it goes to. Sure. 
Sure. It's a tax that West Virginia and other states levy on our natural resources that are severed from the ground. Things like coal production, coal processing, natural gas and oil, uh, timber, which we no longer have a severance tax for, but we used to. Uh, and it's a way that states ensure that we benefit from the natural resources beneath our feet. You know, often the coal and natural gas leaves the state, but the severance tax is how we make sure the people of West Virginia uh, have some benefit from those resources and, of course, can deal with the externalities from uh, fossil fuel extraction. And there's a share that goes to state government as well as a share that goes to local government. That's right. The uh, majority of the tax goes to the state, uh, into our general revenue fund, and then a couple of other places. Uh, and then a percentage of both goes to local communities, uh, coal and natural gas producing communities. And would you agree that, uh, that during the past couple of years, say 2022, 2023, uh, the, uh, the receipts from, from severance tax were unusually high. Yeah, I think historically high in fiscal years 2022 and 2023. Uh, a lot of that was related to global energy prices. Uh, that's really what kind of dictates energy prices, which then dictates you know, how much we bring in in severance tax revenue. So those two years were historically high years for severance tax. Um, fiscal year 2023, of course, we cut the income tax in part due to a surplus generated by the severance tax. Um, but now we're seeing really those uh, energy prices and severance tax revenues kind of come back down to earth. Right. So things have changed. And, you know, because they're tied to these com commodities that um, that are traded on a global market, um, the, the, you know, the revenue goes up, it goes down. Um, what's the risk of, of leaning too heavily on a volatile source of re tax revenue like that? Well, things like the um, income tax, the sales tax are pretty predictable. Um, they have generally pretty predictable growth each year. But the severance tax, like you said, it, it bobs up and down pretty drastically due to factors outside of West Virginia policymakers' control. So a lot of states have um, essentially enacted sovereign wealth funds uh, for their natural resources to make sure that that money goes into a pot, it's generating investment wealth, and it, that investment income is used to fund other things. Um, it, it, it is dangerous potentially to rely on it too heavily for general revenue um, in comparison to other taxes just because of its volatility. It can you know, swing up and it can swing down just as quickly. But, but now to be clear, West Virginia doesn't have any kind of mechanism to help um, you know, I, I think your word was flattened. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the vast majority of our severance tax revenue goes into the general revenue fund, so that pays for our public education system, our health care, uh, and other basic needs that we pay for out of the state budget. So uh, about eight states who are natural resource states have uh, enacted these sovereign wealth funds where they divert some or all of their natural resource tax revenue into a fund, an investment fund that gains gains dollars in investment over the years and they redirect those to services to make sure that there's something to show after the natural resource is gone. This is states like New Mexico and Alaska and Wyoming and Texas um, often fund uh, in perpetuity programs like education, again, to make sure that we're diversifying our economy because of the finite uh, natural resources that we, we have. Uh, West Virginia passed a future fund, I believe in 2014, that was supposed to uh, be one of these sovereign wealth funds where we could you know, pay for uh, the future of West Virginia and make sure we had something to show for our people after the resources were gone. Uh, unfortunately, no money was ever put into uh, the future fund and it was repealed last year. Let's see, where, where can I go next with this? 
Um, well, you mentioned that um, that there was a, uh, a, a a reduction in the personal income tax last mm -hmm. year, and income tax is another one of those streams, along with sales tax, uh, that supports um, the the needs of, of state and local government. Um, did did the did the legislature maybe take too much away in terms of of the the personal income tax because if if that goes down and then the uh, the severance tax revenue also goes down and the sales tax I don't know it could go up or down but yet you're having to you know they say that they they um, uh, they they're trying to keep the budget flat. But they're also trying to do new things and, and give public employees pay raises and uh, maybe even enact more tax cuts. So wh wh where do you see things at this point and where do you see them going? I think it's inarguable that some of last year's severance tax boom helped make the case for permanent tax cuts. Uh, almost 40% of our revenue surplus last year was severance tax surplus above estimates. Um, totaling about $700 million, and I think there's no doubt that that helped build the momentum around the surplus that told lawmakers used to say, hey, we can permanently cut the personal income tax. Um, so I think that that's certainly baked into the case for reducing the personal income tax. Now we have to balance the importance of the severance tax with the volatility of the severance tax. Right now, severance tax is the third largest source of income in our general revenue fund. Um, and if lawmakers get their way uh, and achieve the elimination of the personal income tax, it'll become the second largest source of income for our general revenue fund. So, you know, we always say diversify your portfolio, but by setting ourselves on a path that eliminates the income tax with no replacement revenue, we're actually doing the opposite. We're making ourselves more reliant on the severance tax, which is scary when you think about its volatility. Uh, and this isn't just me saying this, it's also the Justice Administration and their fiscal year 25 budget forecast for the next five years. Um, they show us going from uh, about six and a half percent of our general revenue fund being funded by the severance tax this year uh, through fiscal year 2027 when it'll make up about 10 percent of our general revenue fund. And that's before any additional income tax cuts are triggered. So uh, while lawmakers, I think, are saying all the right things that we need to we need to become less reliant for our general budget needs on the severance tax. I think what's happening in reality is by cutting the income tax, we're becoming more dangerously reliant on the severance tax. Well, and the numbers don't look good at this mm -hmm. point because uh, at this time last year, seven months into the fiscal year, uh, I, I looked at the Office of Revenue numbers earlier, 631 million. Well, now we're seven months into, into this current fiscal year, it's at 168 million. That's a substantial reduction. What are the dangers of that? Well, I think, I mean, the danger was in assuming that last year would remain forever. Uh, we knew that energy prices would come back down to earth. Folks that have been in West Virginia or been around policymaking know, you know, this is what happens with the severance tax. So, unfortunately, some of the damage has already been done by using that temporary boom to justify a permanent income tax cut. But, but one path ahead would be not going forward with income tax cut triggers that would continue to erode the personal income tax and again make us more reliant on the severance tax. Well, I know that that um, that your organization has um, uh, you know certain policy preferences. Uh, you know what what should lawmakers be doing instead of what they've done? Well, we 
we need new spending. After five years of flat budgets, there are a lot of pent-up needs that we're seeing in our public education system and corrections and our infrastructure and our communities. Um, and these triggers that will permanently or eventually eliminate the income tax are really scary to think about how they um, essentially come at the front of the line ahead of other expenditures. Um, I think it's also important to think about our severance tax as an investment in our future and, and recognize that you know natural resources like coal and natural gas are finite and they won't be around forever. Uh, and whatever we can do to set some of that money aside for improving our communities, job training, public education, jobs of the future. You know, New Mexico, we mentioned, was one of the natural resource states that has one of these funds um, that they set aside some of their resource tax funding with. And last year, voters in New Mexico overwhelmingly voted to fund universal child care with a portion of that severance tax money. Um, sever child care is a big topic of discussion at the legislature this year. Um, and again, this is a, a pot of money that if you put it into a fund, allowed it to accrue interest, uh, accrue uh, more dollars through investments, it could become kind of an ongoing source of funding for programs that we think are really important and set young people up for a brighter future. Well, let's come back to the uh, the sovereign fund again, or the, the, the future fund as they called it here. How come that just kind of went away? <laughs> well, I think uh, I wasn't around back in 2013, 2014 when it was being negotiated, but I believe um, that it was ultimately uh, kind of weakened to where the triggers to trigger uh, when money would go into it. Uh, were weakened and weakened, so we never hit those metrics of where we would put money into it. We didn't prioritize putting money into it fast enough, um, so it was never it never received a dollar, so it could never generate that investment income and never fund programs like you know childcare deserts that we're seeing now. Is there a, a possibility that, that a few years down the road um, that? the surpluses that we had could turn into a shortfall. That has happened, hasn't it? That certainly has happened. I mean, most recently, I think it happened, you know, when Governor Justice was coming into office. And one thing that created those shortfalls was a lot of tax cuts that were phased in between 2009 and 2016. Uh, over that period, uh, under then Governor Manchin and Democrats, we uh, enacted a, over $400 million a year in tax cuts. Uh, by the time they were fully phased in, Governor Justice was in office and he had to deal with the consequences of how tax cuts reduced revenues uh, and forced important choices. So we kind of can see that potentially playing out again where temporary good times, temporary pandemic era federal programs, temporary severance tax windfalls created uh, some fever around tax cuts. Uh, but as these things come back down to earth, uh, it might force some tough choices for spending ahead. So uh, again, we keep talking about these triggers that are kind of hanging over our heads uh, and at the front of the line in front of new spending for childcare or other programs. Um, and I think you know, those things happen automatically. We would urge lawmakers to roll those back and decide in the moment if a tax cut is affordable or more preferable than giving our teachers a raise or hiring social workers or investing in infrastructure. Well, there, there's certainly uh, no shortage of needs. Um, but but like you, like we've been discussing, um, they've um, they've kept the budget flat. Um, but but I guess what I'm asking is that that, that even even though the budget is flat at this point, um, you know, could <laughs> perhaps that there could, could there not be enough revenue to even? Mm. Well, I think by reducing the number of 
sources of taxes that we see go into our general revenue fund, it would increase that possibility. So if we're eliminating the income tax, which is our biggest source of revenue, um, and we just have fewer sources of revenue to rely on, I think it's possible. So, you know, we say, again, diversify your portfolio is a good wealth management tool. It's a good uh, tool for state governments as well to make sure we're not um, getting rid of revenue without thinking about where we're going to replace it. All right. Well, Kelly Allen, thank you so much. Thank you. We had intended to have Delegate Vernon Chris on the show to discuss severance taxes as well, but he was unable to attend as the House was still in session. I'm Brianna Heaney. From everyone here at WVPB, thanks for joining us and have a great evening. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, offering education, health care, and the opportunity to achieve career success since 1867. Information at go.wvu.edu slash forward.